You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Nothing makes me happier, as all of you regular listeners know. Then science catching up with me with something I've said, like for years, how I talked about how we should be GGG, good, giving, and game. I'm still talking about GGG. I'm going to talk about it right now, in fact. GGG is what we should all be for our partners. GGG is what our partners should be for us. For new listeners, those Gs stand for good in bed, giving pleasure at times without the expectation of an immediate payback, and game for anything within reason. For years, I told people that being GGG would be good for their relationships. It's particularly good, I think, and helpful if you're in a sexually exclusive long-term relationship. You know, the kind of relationship some people out there think I'm trying to destroy. No, just trying to help. Two different sets of researchers, Amy Muse at the University of Toronto and Valerie Young and Trisha Burke at Hanover College, studied folks who are GGG after hearing me rant about it for so many years. Muse looked at partners who demonstrated a willingness to meet each other's needs, which she terms sexual communal strength. And Young and Burke studied people who've undergone what they call sexual transformations to meet a partner's needs. Muse found that couples who were GGG reported higher levels of daily sexual desire and were more likely to maintain their desire over time. And Young and Burke found that couples who were GGG reported higher levels of relationship satisfaction overall. So, hey, thank you, science, for catching up to me, proving me right. I appreciate that. So you can imagine my delight when I saw this headline in The Guardian last week. Cannabis smokers have 20% more sex, researchers find. Quoting from The Guardian, Stanford University School of Medicine researchers found that women who were daily pot users had sex an average of 7.1 times in the previous four weeks, compared with 6.0 times reported by those who denied using marijuana in the past year. Among men, daily users reported 6.9 times, compared with 5.6 for non-users. The findings were published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and given that the average couple had sex about once a week, The researcher said smoking marijuana could add up to 20 more instances of intercourse each year. Now, more sex isn't always better sex, of course, but the more sex a couple has, researchers found, the stronger their sexual connection continues to be over time and the likelier they are not just to stay together, but be happy together, which is one of the reasons why I'm always recommending pot just a little bit to couples who are having a hard time connecting or in cases where someone feels a little inhibited or self-conscious about doing something that's otherwise safe, sane, and consensual, and with someone who also wants to do it with them, again, a little puff or two, a mild edible, not baked out of your mind. Just get a little high, take the edge off, and let it happen. And I really want to say, based on this one study, that, hey, science caught up to me again. But that may be a little premature. The study's lead author, Dr. Michael Eisenberg, assistant professor of urology at Stanford, warned against interpreting the study as having proven a causal link. This may be correlation that works. Actually, uninhibited couples and or couples with higher libidos may be less inhibited about things like recreational drug use. But causation hasn't been ruled out either. So more research is called for, and I'm confident that further study will find a causational link between pot use and sexual frequency and satisfaction. Oh, and speaking of pot, Halloween is next week and Gloucester County is issuing a warning about marijuana edibles being given out as candy. Officials are urging trick-or-treaters to beware of gummy candy. First of all, happy Halloween, everybody. Today is Halloween and welcome to the latest Halloween panic. 
Seems like there's plenty of real shit to be worried about this Halloween. President Trump, nuclear war, climate change, mass extinction, the mass die off of insects and sperm cells. Google both things. But it wouldn't really be Halloween and it wouldn't be local TV news without unnecessary panic. And thank you for the clip, KYWTV, CBS, Philly, just you watch. Now, when I was a kid, our parents were in a panic or they were supposed to be in a panic about evil people putting razor blades into apples which never actually happened. No one gave out apples on Halloween, for starters, and no kid would have eaten an apple had they been given one. We'd have resorted to eating candy dots and Necco wafers before we ate the apples. By the time we got to the apples, they would have rotted away and the razor blades would have been obvious and exposed. But we never got apples, with or without razor blades. From a pothead to all the parents out there, from a pothead who passes out a lot of candy on Halloween, from a pothead who is also a parent... This really isn't a thing that you need to worry about. Pot edibles are really expensive for starters, and no pothead is going to toss pot gummies that start at $10 a pop into hundreds of trick-or-treaters' plastic pumpkins on their porches. And come on, pot users, even if pot edibles were cheap, we're not monsters. And again, many of us are parents ourselves. And you know how we trust drinkers not to give kids who ask for water a glass of vodka instead? You can trust potheads not to give kids marijuana edibles when they ask for candy. And as a quick aside, I want to send my love and support and gratitude to Anthony Rapp for speaking up. And to Kevin Spacey, I just want to say your application to join the gay community at this time has been denied and you are welcome to reapply again in 57 years. All right, coming up on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast today, we've got Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges here to talk about her re-election campaign, to talk about resisting Trump, to talk about her history of sexual abuse, and to field one of your questions, because we don't let people come on the show without tackling a sex advice question, too. And in the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, we've got tons of your cues and lots of my A's, all that coming up today. Hi, I'm a 24-year-old straight female who is in a relationship with a wonderful, sweet man, um, we've been together for three and a half years, and he's um, 38. We get along really well and have great communication. Our desires match up really well. My problem is that I've recently gotten a job offer for my first job, which I am taking, and I've signed the offer letter. Unfortunately, this job is in a different state, and I have to move away. Logistically, it's not going to be possible for me to see him, and so I know that inevitably we are breaking up. This is making me very upset and giving me a lot of anxiety because we have such a great relationship and I don't I don't know how to deal with the fact that it's going to end, not because of anything being wrong with the relationship, but because of just logistics and circumstance. I don't really know how to deal with this. Um, the other issue is that since I'm moving away, I'm not going to have any friends in my new place that are going to be on standby to talk to and meet with. I'm very upset by this and I, I, I'm not sure how to deal with it. I'm was wondering if you had any advice of me for how to deal with the inevitability of this. Um, I'm, I'm actually moving next week. Congratulations first on landing that job, a job that is so important to you, it would seem, perhaps a job you've been preparing for in college, uh, important enough for you to pull up stakes and move across the country to take that position. It must be something you really, really wanted. So, and worked hard for. So, congratulations. What to do about your boyfriend? Well, you don't necessarily have to break up. Long distance relationships are a thing. If he's not willing to 
follow you to this new place or unable to follow you and isn't willing to be in a long-distance relationship, then the message there, what you might need to read into that is he's ready to exit this relationship and the new job that's taking you out of town is the duxus machina that is saving him from having to break up with you formally and officially and himself. And I don't mean to be cruel, but sometimes you have to read into people's actions what their intentions might be or their wishes might be. If, however, he's willing to pursue an LDR with you, then invite him to come visit you. Come visit him. Wherever you're going, it's not the space station. You're not going to be inaccessible. And just as a long-distance relationship can be facilitated these days through the wonders of modern technology and social media, so too can your contacts with your friends and your support network. Yes, you are leaving your friends behind. You're going to a strange city. You won't know anybody. You'll meet people. You'll get to know people. You'll make new friends. But your friends back wherever it is that you came from, they have the internet there too. They have Skype. They have FaceTime. They have WhatsApp audio and video chat. You will be able to lean on and call on your friends for support. It's going to be virtual. You won't have a shoulder to cry on. You will have a virtual shoulder to cry on. You have a laptop to cry on and a smartphone to cry on. But they can particularly if you call out the cavalry now, love and support you through the end of this relationship, whether the relationship ending is just a consequence of this new job and you guys being pulled apart by circumstance or whether the relationship ending, his passivity in the face of this move is an indication that the relationship is going to end anyway. And I don't mean to be cruel, but sometimes you have to think these things through in this way and read into someone's actions or non-actions what it is they really want. Also, you're 24 years old. You've been with this guy, you said, for three and a half years, since before you could buy a drink. You've been with this guy. Go live some of your adult life. Go be single in a new place with a great job for a while. Go meet some new people. I'm not saying go meet people your own age. If you're attracted to guys who are 15, 20 years older than you are, awesome. Meet some of those guys in a new place. And then if in three or four years or two years or 18 months, he's still single, you're still single, the same cruel turning of the wheel, the same kinds of circumstances that conspire to pull you two apart, circumstance can conspire to bring two people back together as well. So you don't need to look at this necessarily as the end. It can be a hiatus. It can be a come springa for you where you get to go out in the world and sow some of your wild ova and enjoy yourself and be young and single and gainfully employed in a new place having an adventure. And you will only be on your own briefly. You will make new friends. You will make new connections. You will have coworkers that you can be open with and just say, hey, I don't know anybody in this new place. Can you guys invite me along to whatever until I find my footing here? And people will be receptive to that. The people you'll want to hang out with will be receptive to that. The people who aren't receptive to that, you don't want to hang out with them anyway. So look on the bright side. Young, single for now, who knows? Maybe you two will get back together in time in a new place. Plenty of money. I hope this new job that you're moving across the country for is well-paying. I expect it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't be moving across the country for it. Get out there. Live a little. Have some fun. Comfort yourself, again, with the thought that maybe you could still have him in the end. Or you could meet somebody else that causes you to forget about that guy. You never know. There's a whole world of possibility out there. And 3.5 billion other men. Go enjoy some of them. Hi, Dan. I love the show. I am a uh, mid-20s married man 
And uh, my question, uh, I've been married for six years now. And my question has to do with um, the fact that I still very much love my partner. And uh, in the sense that I care very much about her and want her to be happy, but I do not feel in love with her anymore. And I'm not quite sure what has led to this situation. I'm not talking about the lack of affection or the lack of infatuation in like the honeymoon stage. I know that that goes away, but the sense of that being in love with somebody. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have anything to say to that. People fall out of love. Maybe you have fallen out of love with your partner. Maybe you still love her and you want the best for her, but you don't feel that romantic strain of love. You don't feel that romantic attachment. You don't feel that infatuation. At the beginning of a relationship, we are really drunk on all sorts of crazy love hormones. The poly people call it NRE, new relationship energy, that giddy ecstatic stage when you can't keep your hands off someone, when you can't think of anything or anyone else but them. When you feel that every moment that you're not in that person's presence or in that person's butt is, is torture and a kind of torture that is only alleviated by that person presenting their butt to you for entering, not to make it all about me. But you say that you're aware of the difference between long and lasting love and that giddy in love phase at the beginning of a relationship and you're not confusing them, that you love your partner but you don't feel in love with her. Not only in the – not that you love your partner but you don't feel in love with her. Not in the long and lasting love sense of in love and not in that beginning of the relationship giddy sense of in love. You just don't feel in love with her. And what do you do about that? Well, you could separate. You could divorce. You could – Look at her and say, I'm not in love with you anymore. I like you. I respect you. I love you. I'll always cherish you. This was a great time. This is a great relationship. I'm from the school of thought that uh, a marriage or a relationship can still be a success even if both people emerge from it alive. That if you grew together and learned together and you stick the dismount, literally in some cases, you stick the dismount and you part as friends and you're able to be present in each other's lives – in a loving and supportive way, even if you aren't romantically in love anymore, that we should be able to look at that relationship and call it a success. So perhaps you can have a successful relationship with your wife after she's no longer your wife. Or you could attempt to fall back in love with your wife again, in romantic love with your wife again. Have you been taking each other for granted? What do you guys do together? Have you made an effort to sustain your connection? Have you carved out quality time together where you feel a sense of connection? Not doing the things with her that she likes to do that you don't like to do and vice versa. She should have her own autonomous individual activities, life, pursuits, and you should have your own. But where's the overlap? What's brought you together in the first place? And have you guys cherished and nurtured that, 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 that place where you overlap, where you do come together, hopefully literally come together at times? And if you haven't, if you've neglected that and it's withered and died, you can start watering that again. You can tend to that. You can rebuild that. There's a great observation that Esther Perel makes in both of her books, in Mating in Captivity and her new book, The State of Affairs, 
where she talks about how many people say that they are most attracted to their partners in a long-term relationship. I really recommend reading Mating in Captivity to you. When they see their partners through another's eyes, when they're out dancing or they're you know at a cocktail party and they look across the room and they see someone else really taking their partner in and suddenly they see their partners through that other person's eyes and they see their partner anew and they see what they were originally attracted to. They're drawn to their partner, not by looking at their partner themselves, not by looking at them directly, but a refracted look, looking at them bounced off someone else. If you and your wife don't go out together, if you and your wife don't socialize with others together, if you and your wife are putting yourselves in, I think, erotically charged environments, not where you're going to fuck other people or chase other people. I'm not telling you not to be monogamous if you're monogamous, but erotically charged environments, just like bars and clubs and out dancing, places where people are physical and sweat, places where other people are picking each other up, places where someone who is single might look at you or at her as if you were available. Because that'll cause her to look at you as if you are newly available or vice versa. You to look at her as if she's suddenly available to you in a different way. And it might prompt you to fall back in love with her. All of this will take some effort. And I think the most revealing question that you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to make the effort? And if you aren't, have your answer. Hi, Dan. This is Florence I'm from UK. Just have a thought that um, a lot of your callers seem to say, um, you know, they've been seeing a guy for like a few months or seeing a girl or whoever for a few months and they're asking advice about it already. And I'm wondering if, if, this, is, if this is an American thing. Do you get more serious more quickly in America? Because here in the UK, um, all of my relationships, like, for example, the one I'm in now, um, I've been with him almost a year and we're only just starting to think about, you know, calling each other um, girlfriend and boyfriend. And from American films I've watched, it just seems like things move a lot quicker in America. Um, is that a thing? Is that something you've heard? Just a thought. Let's start from the beginning. Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, America got the Puritans. And most of them were English Puritans, the assholes who pulled down the Globe Theater, cut off Charles I's head. You dumped them all on the North American continent where they came not seeking religious freedom, as we're told in social studies classes in America when we're in high school, but seeking a space where they could set about persecuting each other for religious reasons forever. And we're still dealing with the fallout from this shit. And one of the ways in which it manifests itself in the culture is people just won't let themselves fuck. Many people. Because people who just meet somebody and want to fuck that person because they think they're hot uh, and it's meaningless and perhaps meaning will come in time if they keep fucking that person. As you, caller, have continued to fuck this guy that you've been fucking for a year and a year into it, you're thinking of perhaps calling each other girlfriend or boyfriend now. At the start, you didn't have to round this up to a grand passion. You'd have to round this up to an emotional commitment to justify having the sex with him that you wanted to have. Because 400 years ago, all those goddamn Puritans got dumped onto the North American continent after they got to kick the fuck out of England by Charles II. After they had to leave, right? And so what you do see here in the United States, I do think that this is a cultural difference. You see people who meet someone that they want to fuck and it's purely physical, but they can't allow themselves to act on the purely physical. So they have to make it spiritual, metaphysical, and romantic. They have to round up this lust to love. 
instead of just letting it be lust and then seeing what comes in time if they continue to act on that attraction, maybe love will come. But you see people prematurely making commitments, prematurely rounding relationships up to grand life, altering passions. You see people saying, I love you three weeks in. You see people moving in with each other in a couple of months. Not just because they're love drunk and besotted, but because they're dealing with a lot of, I think, cultural messaging and shame around the illegitimacy of just acting on lust, being attracted to someone and going for it and then seeing what comes in time and, and waiting. And the problem with this rounding up is a lot of people find out after the fact that they were in error, that they rounded someone that their junk wanted, but it turns out that their head and heart don't want up to boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. And now they're stuck in that relationship. They made a commitment. And they can't just back out of it and walk away. So I hear from people who three months into a relationship, four months into a relationship, are in couples counseling, which I think is ridiculous. If four months into a relationship you're in couples counseling, you shouldn't have been in a relationship to begin with. That's insane. And that's driven by this dynamic. I want to fuck you. It's dick stuff. It's pussy stuff. I want to jam our junk together. But I don't want to be that kind of base person. I don't want to be a bad person. That's what a bad person would do. No, I want to jam our junk together because I am in love with you because you are the one. And then three months later, when you realize they're not the one, you have painted yourself into a corner that you can't back out of and you're in couples counseling or calling my show and asking for permission to dump the motherfucker already, which I'm always prepared to give. So yes, caller, there is a cultural difference. Thank you for calling in and highlighting it for us. But come on, UK, you got to take a little responsibility for it. You dumped your English Puritans all over this continent, your murderous, homicidal, genocidal English Puritans, your sex-negative, sex-phobic English Puritans, and we are still reeling. Hi, Dan. I'm in my late 30s, bisexual female, married for 10 plus years to a great man, and we are in a monogamish relationship. In the last couple of years, we've started adventuring into, quote, the lifestyle, and I can honestly say I have never felt closer to my husband. We have fun, the sex is crazy good, and I get to see him not as just a husband and father, but as a sexual flirtatious being. I enjoy the idea of hot spousing, as he put it on a previous episode. We don't play often because of life and kids, but when we do, it's a lot of fun. We are more open and communicate more than ever, and I finally feel like I have a teammate in life and in sexual exploration. There is, however, one problem. Whenever we partake in these experiences together, my husband has extreme guilt afterwards, and he goes through this period of grief in which he thinks what we did was wrong. He will go to confession and ultimately feel better, and a few months later, we will go have wild, fun night of sex again. Now, I in no way or shape feel like what we're doing is wrong. We are together. We love each other. We are communicating. And no one's hiding anything or hurting anyone. In fact, in the past, there were times where he hid things from me or I hid things from him. And I always felt bad about this. And it was hurtful to both of us. But it seems like he feels worse about doing these fun, kinky things with me versus when he used to hide things from me. Unless he was hiding feeling bad as well. I want to continue our fun times together, and so does he. However, I hate to see him beat himself up or hurt over something that we do together. It's almost offensive that doing something fun and consensual with his wife would cause him any pain or angst. How can I help him to see that what we're doing is okay after the fact? 
Because let me tell you, when we are in the midst of play, he is having just as much fun, if not more fun, than anyone in the room. I don't want to hurt him. I also don't want to go back to the straight vanilla life either because I'm worried we may go back into hiding our kinky, freaky sides. And that is a world I don't want to live in. Should I just let him go through the grief and love him and support him through it? Even though he's doing all of this self-bashing, I know deep inside that we ultimately want to stay together, love each other, and really every little sex act we do is such a non-issue when you think of all the real problems in this world. Or am I wrong? And maybe this is all wrong. And maybe the conscious attacks he's having is a genuine sign that what we're doing in the bedroom isn't right. Help, I'm confused. Before I get to your question, I want to make sure that the previous caller, the guy who was wondering about being in love with his wife versus loving his wife, I want to make sure that he heard you say, I get to see him not just as the husband and father, but as a sexual flirtatious being. That's exactly what I was talking about. Now, you guys are having sex with other people, but you go out and you see your husband through other people's eyes when you're in those environments, and you're more attracted to him as a result. You're in this sexually charged erotic environment, and it fuels not just your attraction to others or his attraction to others, but your attraction to him and his to you and your connection. So, yeah, this is how it works. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Previous caller wondering about love or not in love with the wife. Put yourself in more environments like this and who knows, maybe that will reignite those feelings of being in love with your wife when you see other men interacting with her, not to fuck her if you guys don't want to have an open relationship, but interacting with her in a way that causes you to see her through their eyes, not just through your own. Causes you, however many years into your relationship, to really see her. Like in a long-term relationship, sometimes we stop even looking at our partners. Anyway, just wanted to highlight that. Okay, what is up with your husband? This is Another previous call, like here's the Puritanism thing, although it's the Catholic variety, not the English Protestant variety. Here's the Puritanism thing. When he was cheating on you and doing these crazy kinky things behind your back, he was doing a bad thing badly. And he felt better about being bad when his bad thing doing was objectively bad, bad in every aspect, more comfortable with it than he is now. You should ask him whether he used to go to confession after cheating on you and doing these kinky things behind your back. And I suspect that he didn't. Because in the doing the bad things in a bad way, he was kind of acknowledging their badness without having to go to a priest and get a priest to tell him, yeah, indeed, that was bad. He knew it was bad. Now that he's doing it in a way that's consensual and loving and constructive, making your marriage better, making your connection better, he needs an outside party to say, hey, hey, that thing you did that was bad, that was bad. And what should you do about it? I don't know. I think you should roll your eyes. When he runs off to confession, I think you should let him have his grief. I also think you should get on ASEC's website. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. They're at aasect.org, asect.org, and find a counselor, find a sex therapist in your area who can stand in for the priest, who can give him absolution, who can explain to him why this thing that he feels is bad and he has to go through this ritual mortification after and go talk to a fucking priest isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a loving thing. It's a constructive thing. And maybe that'll help. But if that doesn't help, I don't think you should stop doing this. Let him have his shit. Look at him and say, okay, your Catholic stuff is crazy, but it's yours. And we have a sex life that we enjoy that works for us as a couple. If it helps you and your conscience to go get absolution from a priest who God knows what that priest's been up to in his spare time, go. But don't pull me into it. 
because it's not about us. That's your shit. And our shit, the shit we share is good. It's golden. And I don't want you to fuck it up with guilt or remorse. I'd rather you get over it. Hey, I got a name of the counselor from this website. Savage sent me to, Hey, maybe we could go talk to that person instead or two. But so long as this doesn't have to stop, so long as our thing is our thing and your shit is your shit, I'd like to keep going as we are. I'd like to keep having these sexual adventures together with my loving husband, these sexual adventures that have brought us closer together and given us these adventures that have brought us closer together, that have been an objective and constructive good in our marriage. And you'd rather you not feel bad about it. Tell him that, but allow him to feel his feelings. You can't tell someone not to feel their feels, but tell him he doesn't have to feel that way. You respect his right to feel his feelings, to feel the shit out of his feelings, to go process his feelings with whomever he cares to process them with, maybe including a priest. But if you talk to a counselor who could help him work through the guilt and the shame that was pounded into him in his Catholic schools, where presumably his parents sent him, maybe he'd feel a little less conflicted about this objective good. Finally, caller, it's possible that this going to the priest, that the feeling bad about it, is part of your husband's enjoyment of all of this, that it's part of his kink. Some people like to feel bad about the quote-unquote bad, dirty sex things they're doing because the transgression, that feeling of transgressiveness, fuels the kink. So the priest isn't this antidote to the kink. It's not absolution for the kink. So the priest may be a part of it for him and an intrinsic part of it for him, that this going to the sex club, having this crazy sex, and then going to the priest and confessing, slash bragging about what just happened is his kink is part of what fuels his desire for the next time. And so it's not just about absolution. It's about the whole naughty boy thing and the being corrected thing by this authority figure who's not his wife. And you may just have to let him enjoy it. Perhaps a sex counselor that you contact through ASAC could explain that to your husband in a way that he would get it. And then he would stop involving priests in his sex life in a non-consensual manner. But if not, and I were in your shoes, I would just say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to a priest, dirty boy. Have fun because very likely it is part of the fun for him, the feeling bad and getting absolution, part of his cake. Hi, Dan. My boyfriend and I have been talking about trying bondage for the first time, and he has some concerns about how it's going to make him see me afterwards. Um, He's worried that it might make him, you know, not respect me as much or, uh, you know, value me a little bit less. I told him that that probably isn't going to happen and he's just being abundantly cautious. But, um, yeah, I was wondering if there's any tips you had to maybe put his mind at ease for when we try this. So I'm worried that your boyfriend is telling you the truth. Okay. And revealing something about himself that, is potentially disturbing. Okay. (laughs) You know, a lot of guys have this, it's a cliche and I hate to cite it. We rarely talk about it, but it's a thing. And some guys struggle with it. It's called the Madonna horror complex, right? There's the woman you date, the woman you marry, you put her on a pedestal, you worship her. And then there's the woman you have the kind of sex with that turns you on. You know, you know, a guy who likes to get his dick sucked and blow a load on a woman's face, who does that with a sex worker that he doesn't respect but not the wife that he worships and loves and adores. And if he were to do it to his wife, if she wanted that too or allowed him to do that too, he would lose respect for her, right? You, 
this is something that right. know, sex counselors and therapists have been talking about forever with men. It's a, it's a hang up that men have, you know, the, the, the woman that you party with and play with and the woman that you marry are two different types of women. And that's bullshit. Right. And to make that distinction is bullshit. And, and to mm-hmm. sort, sort women into those two categories is bullshit because someone can be both worshiped and you can blow a load on that person's face or whatever. And so, so, you know, I, I don't know your boyfriend and you have a better read on him than I do based on your short call. But I need, if I were in your shoes, I would want to hear more from him about this. Why do you think you would lose respect for me if we did this? Have you done this with anyone else before? Did you lose respect for them afterwards? What do you think of kink? What do you think of kinky women? It sounds like this is a request of yours that you're interested in being tied up. Is that right? Yes. And so a follow-up question for him would be, well, you know I want to be tied up. Have you already lost respect for me because I have a kink? What do you think the answers to those questions would be when you put them to him? I'm, I'm curious what you think of him. Does he have sexual hang-ups? Um, I think so. He was raised a very strict Catholic, so I think um, you know, he does have some hang-ups and some reservations about like trying some more kinky things. He's pretty shy and kind of timid, mm-hmm. and I think he just... Yeah, I think he's just... Uh, he lets that hold himself back a little bit. Madonna whore. Madonna is what Catholics call the virgin. So <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a Catholic thing. It's got a Catholic stamp on it. I'm not sure. It's not exclusive to the Catholic boys, but it's got Catholic written all over it. I just feel like, you know, in every other aspect of our relationship, he's like very respectful and very sweet. He's been absolutely wonderful. And, he didn't like outright say like, oh, if we do this, it's going to, it, you know, it might make me think less of you or whatever. It's just a concern that he had because he's never tried this before. Mm-hmm. How long have you been seeing him? Um, seven months. Okay. Well, you should do it. You should have him do this with you. Because if it does cause him to lose respect for you, if it does change the relationship, that's not on you. That's on him. Yeah, that's kind of what I think, too. And it's one of those moments, we talk about these moments a lot, where you tell someone one thing about you and their reaction tells you everything that you need to know about them. If indeed he does have this Madonna whore hang-up and thinks less of you because you have this sexual interest that you'd like to pursue with someone that you love and respect and would expect that they can love and respect you and embrace your kinks as you would embrace theirs, and what he reveals in that moment is that he's incapable of doing that, then he's the wrong partner for you. And he's told you something very important about himself. He's told you everything you need to know about him, which is that you got to dump the motherfucker. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think you should jump right into the bondage, but jump right into another conversation about it. Like ask him to unpack for you at length what the problem is. Maybe it's just, you know, he, he re- reached for that. He lunged for that excuse because it sounded like he was being deferential to you and, and concerned for you. Maybe he just has performance anxiety. Maybe he's never tied anybody up before and he's not sure what to do and he's worried about being bad at it and disappointing you. It could be something else entirely. After I say this after pathologizing your boyfriend in the extreme, right, and putting him on the couch <laughs> and psychoanalyzing him uh, and accusing him of having this Madonna whore hang up, he may not have that. He could have just clumsily reached for an excuse to get himself off the hook because he's worried that he won't know how to do it right and you'll be disappointed and you'll break up with him because he can't do it. And, and, and he's yeah, well, and I think he's really hesitant to hurt me. Like, I think he's afraid to like hurt me. And I'm like, you know, That's it's a legitimate concern when you're talking about yeah. a, a junior varsity kink, like simple bondage, just, it's a legitimate concern. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't want to hurt you and you can hurt someone by ineptly using rope or handcuffs, which is why I'm often telling people who are interested in bondage to invest in real gear 
real restraints. They look sinister and people are like, oh my mm. God, that's too extreme. But they're much safer. You know, like quality restraints from a company like Mr. S in San Francisco, uh, which is owned by friends of mine. So here's a plug. Uh, they <laughs> distribute the pressure and weight so that you're not going to wind up with, um, you know, uh, a pinched nerve or a rope burn. All the things that people who are using rope screw up with the first time. Like people reach for the rope or they reach for the handcuffs because it's simple and it's less extreme and they hurt themselves. And the people who are reaching for, you know, the extreme looking restraints, they're safe and they're not getting hurt. So if you're seriously interested in bondage, maybe for Christmas, invest in some actual gear for yourself so that you guys can explore this with some comfort around, around it being safe, safer than handcuffs and rope. But have a conversation okay. with them. Have a conversation yeah, with them. Good. If it's Madonna whore, if that's the issue, have a conversation with them about respect, the things that, uh, you know, you guys being able to really be open with each other about your sexualities and your kinks and your interests and that you are there to celebrate his and he should be there to celebrate yours. And that if you can't be open with him about your kinks and your sexuality without him judging you and losing respect for you, then you're the wrong girl for him and he's the wrong guy for you, more importantly. But if it's just performance mm-hmm. anxiety and and – the more I talk, the more I think, you know, it's probably performance anxiety. Then that's a different conversation <laughs> where you tell him we're going to take baby yeah. steps. You don't have to be any good at this at first. We've never done this before together. You know, just like the first time you have sex uh, with someone, it's going to be a little awkward. You're finding your way. You're, you're figuring them out. But this, you know, that same thing applies to the first time you do kink with someone or do kink with a long-term partner. You're finding your way. You're feeling each other out. You keep it simple. You know, he's probably, as most people have, seen a lot of crazy bondage porn on Tumblr. Like, bondage porn just pops up into regular porn feeds now. And a lot of it's so fucking elaborate looking. It's crazy. And he may be thinking, she wants me to do that? I can't do that. Yeah. But if it's just a simple matter of, like, your hand's tied behind your back with a necktie or a scarf, anybody can do that. Kids tie each other up, Mm -hmm. play cops and robbers. Like, anybody can do that. I, yeah, want, okay. I want you to have these conversations with him, the Madonna whore, and the, is this just a performance anxiety problem? And I want you to call us back and let us know what it was, what the problem was. Okay, yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to call back. All right, good luck. Thank you so much for calling. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old woman from Atlanta. I have had several sexual partners and have had two long-term relationships, one of which I have been in for about a year now. I've never had an orgasm with a partner and can only seem to achieve one with a vibrator. I'm working on trying to figure out how to achieve an orgasm manually and hope to be able to get there eventually. Um, the issue that it, um, is that I've faked orgasms with all of my sexual partners and have been doing so for the extent of my current relationship. This is something that I would never tell another woman to do. I would always advise them against it and say, you deserve an orgasm, but it's kind of hard to do that when it's you in the situation. I tried to stop faking them for about three months in my current relationship, and my boyfriend got really down on himself and felt really responsible, so uh, I started faking them again. He worked really hard and was really trying to figure out how to achieve one, but it just kind of wasn't happening. I've since moved to Texas for a job. And now we see each other even less. And I don't want to have the once a month sex that we do get to have be brought down by him feeling bad that he can't make me orgasm. Should I tell him I've been faking or maybe bring it up as a new issue to work through? And if so, how? If you've been with him for 15 years and let's say you had a couple of kids and you've been faking orgasms for 20 years, five years before you got married and 15 years after you got married, 
I would tell you perhaps to lie, to give him a little white lie, tell him it's a new issue, something about your body physiologically changed and all the things that used to get you off don't get you off anymore and you need more and more intense stimulation in a particular way in order to climax. Here's my vibrator. Let's do it to spare him because, you know, it's kind of a lie. You fake an orgasm with somebody for 15, 20 years and then you have to walk all that back. They're going to look at you like, wow, every single time we had sex, you led me to believe that what I was doing was pleasing you, was getting you off. And every single time that that was a lie, that can be shattering. That can be shattering for someone to hear. And if you lie to somebody for 15 years, I think the onus is on you and recognizing there's tons of cultural pressure on women to lie about what gets them off, to fake orgasms, not putting all responsibility on the individual woman's shoulders. But if you lie to somebody for 15, 20 years and you want to extricate yourself from that in such a way that you don't destroy the relationship, they don't shatter the guy's ego and you're still capable of having sex with each other, then yeah, you need to perhaps go with the white lie. But seven months in, a year into this relationship, no fucking way, no white lie. You told him the truth five, six months in, and he spent three months pouting and feeling bad and manipulated you into doing what he wanted, which was not to suddenly become orgasmic in the way that you weren't, you told him you aren't orgasmic, but to fake orgasm so that he didn't have to do the work so that he didn't have to figure out with you what works for you and what gets you off. And so this isn't some poor sad sack you misled for 10, 15, 20 years. This is a manipulative piece of shit. Who's weaponizing his insecurities, this performance of the sads, to get you to fake orgasms for him. Fuck that. All that said, do you masturbate? Can you make yourself come? Masturbate with him. Show him what it takes. And if what it takes is a vibrator, then that's the hammer that he's going to use to build the orgasmic house that you guys are going to live in. And he needs to get the fuck over feeling bad about having to use a hammer. Nobody walks up to a house and says, oh, you used a hammer to build that? You didn't do that yourself. A real man builds a house with no hammers. He drives the nails with his teeth. No, you look at the house and say, nice house. And you go, yeah, here are the tools I use. Well, he's going to build orgasms for you. And if he has to use tools, he has to use fucking tools. But you, you have to stop feeling sorry for him. You have to stop allowing him to manipulate you with these giant sads and tell him, look, Get over it. This is how my body works. This is what my body needs. I will masturbate with you. Let's masturbate together. I will show you. I will guide your hands. You will hold the vibrator. I will hold my hand over your head with the vibrator. We will do this together. And this is what I need to be sexually fulfilled and satisfied in this relationship. What I don't need, what leaves me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied is this fucking pout. Is this big sad? Is this frowny face when I don't come when you do exactly what I've told you doesn't make me come. And if he can't get over it, if he can't pivot, if he can't pull a 180 and come around and get with the program and get with your clit and your pussy and how your body works and what needs to happen for you to enjoy sex as much as he enjoys it, it's only been a year. You only see him once a month. Fuck him. I mean, stop fucking him. Fuck somebody else. Find somebody else. Date somebody else. Dump that motherfucker already. All right. We're going to take a momentary break from the calls to speak with Betsy Hodges. She is the mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hey, Betsy, how are you? I'm great, Dan. How are you? Good. It's rare that we have elected officials on the show, but we wanted to have you on because you are running for re-election and I am in your corner and I'm hoping that you get a second term because I think you've done a really great job as so many mayors across the country have done in standing up to the Trump misadministration. 
Thank you very much. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan, so I think in all the episodes, I don't know that you've had an elected official before. I'm, I, I'm honored to be the first or near the first. I've had an Episcopal bishop, so in the line of succession uh, from uh, St. Peter, we had one of those, but never an elected official, never, never at your level. So uh, I've said since the night Trump got elected that cities would lead the resistance. And Minneapolis is one of those cities like New York, like San Francisco, like Los Angeles, like Seattle, like Portland, uh, that's leading the resistance. How are mayors fighting uh, the Trump administration and, and what have you done and what are you doing? Well, one great thing is that a lot of us mayors know one another. And so we have come together to do days of action around DACA or around the ACA, um, around GLBTQ rights. Uh, we talk to one another and we organize knowing that our collective voices are really powerful. And here at home, I had the same realization you did that night. You know, President Obama, uh, who was so great, uh, really did a great job of working with cities, knowing that with a, a Congress, anything done, that he could really move his agenda in partnership with cities. And once it was clear there was a President Trump, that day I had to say something very clearly. We know who Donald Trump is. We didn't need to wait and see. He had shown himself to us so many times. And I had been busy, um, you know, standing up and saying what needs saying uh, for people, for cities ever since. I gave a speech in April called One Minneapolis in the Time of Trump that really laid out, look, he's coming after our cities and the people who live in them, and he's coming after our First Amendment rights. And here's what cities can do to stand up for people and stand up for the First Amendment. And then in the budget that I delivered in September, I invested in those things. You know, he's coming after media, so I want... Minneapolis to be a place where you can get your data practice request answered really quickly if you're somebody in the media. Okay, translate that Translate that for the lay person. That means somebody who makes a freedom of information request, a reporter who asks the city for documents or emails, that it's easier for those reporters to get it. You're making Minneapolis's city government more transparent. Exactly. That, um, and Minneapolis has been notoriously bad about making it easy for reporters to get the information from us that they need and that they deserve. And so I'm investing in making that easier. You know, he's coming after artists. So I've gathered our, t our leaders at all levels here in Minneapolis to come together and say, what can we do together to make sure that the voices of artists and the organizations that support them are heard um, in this time when he just wants to silence any voices of dissent. And I think that's incumbent on all of us as Americans. I just have a platform as mayor where I have some levers I can pull that others don't, and I am pulling all of them that I can. One of the issues that's roiling the country is uh, violence by police departments, by police officers. Uh, and you moved to – you directed, I believe, the police department in Minneapolis to hire another person to deal with data requests about officer conduct. So you're, you're holding, you're creating a position that's going to help the citizens of Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, hold the police department there accountable. Yep. One of the biggest places we had that was holding up uh, reporters getting data was just the overwhelming number of the police department was getting. So yes, I've invested, I proposed an investment to the city council. They're going to vote on this in December for another data records person in the police department so that reporters, journalists, uh, anybody who's writing or anybody who asks can get their data quickly. I want to touch on a, a sensitive topic um, 
but that you took a very public stand on. Last year, you came out as a survivor of sexual abuse, and I just wanted uh, in a Facebook campaign, um, and I thought that was really brave and really helpful and necessary. And I'm just curious how you've been feeling and what your reaction is to the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal, the the, the news, uh, and the reaction online, the the Me Too campaign. Um, how are you feeling there? And, and 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 what's your take on all of that? Well, I mean, first I would say to any survivors of sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual violence, um, or and sexual harassment out there, you know, you're not alone. There are many of us standing with you, and that's become apparent, even more apparent, I think, in recent days. Um, I did decide to story. Um, I was a survivor of childhood sexual assault. It happened for many years. Um, nobody in my family. I always clarify that. Um, and what I'm also the message that I also carry is that I'm a, I, I've done a lot of healing work around that, and it's possible to heal, and I carry that message to people, especially if you're in those acute days of healing, mm-hmm. um, that healing is really possible, um, and you know you have a lot of people standing with you. And in recent days, you know, I guess I'm not shocked or amazed or surprised that there are so many people coming out with their stories. I am just sad that it remains true. And the more visible it is, the more people who understand what a problem it is and that it isn't something we need to stay silent about, um, the more protections there are for us as we speak publicly about it, the more encouraged I am. And so it's it's been awful to see the Me Too's lining up in my social media feeds, but it's also been uh, very affirming that I'm really not alone um, there, you know, I'm not the only one. Uh, when I made my story public, it was with a campaign uh, that Sarah Super here in Minneapolis started called Break Silence. And it's just a photograph and an essay that goes along with it on a Facebook page. And I participated in that as my way of breaking the silence. And that itself was hugely freeing. Okay. We you can't let anybody come on the show without uh, asking them to tackle a question with me. Just because advice, look it up in the dictionary. It says opinion about what could or should be done. You don't need any special qualifications to give your opinion. As a mayor, you're constantly asked for your opinion on civic issues and national issues. But here we're going to ask for your opinion on someone's personal issues. Are you game? I am more than game. And for any Lovecast listeners who are wondering, you know, if you've been listening to Lovecast a long time and if you're wondering what it's like to then come on the show and about to answer a question with Dan, I will say it's awesome and it's a little <laughs> nerve-wracking. It's a little nerve-wracking. I'll do my best. Okay, here we go. Hi, Dan. I'm a young woman in college and I have a question that has to do with friendship. About a year ago in my first year of college, I and another person who was a freshman became friends. This young man was really great, and we were both single at the time, so I was really interested in dating him. But eventually, he started dating somebody else, and soon after that, I also started dating somebody else. For the past year, he's been in that same relationship. I eventually decided to end mine, um, but that doesn't have as much to do with the, the part of friendship in question as a different friend of ours. We kind of lost touch over the summer because a mutual friend of ours who is female said some really hurtful things to me, and I decided that I didn't want her in my life anymore. He decided to remain friends with her, um, and it has really affected our friendship with each other, even though we've never talked about it. 
I also am not really fond of his girlfriend, not because she's just his girlfriend and I wanted to date him, but because I feel like she has really poor character and their relationship is really toxic. These days, I don't really know what to do to salvage our friendship. I don't know if I should continue talking to him or if our friendship is just gone. He really doesn't communicate with me that much anymore, and I don't know what to do about it. When I've talked to family and other friends about it, they've basically said, well, if he wants to socialize with people like the other girl who hurt me and someone like his girlfriend who basically has the moral character of a dumpster fire, then why do I care what he thinks of me? But for some reason, I really do. And I worry that by leaving my other friend behind, he thinks that I'm a bad person. I don't really know what to do. If I should talk to him, if I should just let it be and let him phase out of my life the same way I kind of phased out of my other friend's life or what? All right. So as a general general rule before we get into the specifics of this, we are not the best judges of the relationships that people are in, people who we wanted to date. We're not the best judges of the quality of the people that they're dating who are not us as a general rule. That is 100% true. That is 100% true. For good or for ill, we don't always know. Right. So I would say um, to the caller, uh, you know, you, you've declared this guy's girlfriend a dumpster fire. Well, you have a bias at play there. She may or may not be a dumpster fire. I can understand why you might resent the girlfriend for having what you wanted in the first place, which is him. But you might want to back the fuck off on the judgment because you're not the best judge. Sort of the the first order conclusion I came to was it's not insignificant that she wanted to date him. Uh, it sounds like she never, as you would say, used her words and told him. Um, and now she's in a situation where she's single and he is not. And I'm guessing she still has some flame carrying that she's doing for him. Uh, and so perhaps she's not the best judge of the girlfriend. Um, and she, you know, but if if we want to talk to her about the things she does have control over, that might be the place to start, right? Because, you know, she can trust her own judgment. If she broke off a friendship with a young woman because she thought that woman was not the right person for her to be friends with, she can trust her own judgment. And if he's somebody who thinks she's a bad person because she did that and he's maintained a friendship with that other person, there's not much she can do about that. If she's going to stand in her own space. She sounds, uh, I think, like she's not picking up the clues that are laid out in front of her. The guy's dating someone else. The guy stayed friends with someone that she had to cut out of her life because she regarded her as toxic. And she's also, she mentions in passing that she doesn't hear from him much anymore. And she's wondering if the friendship is over. And the answer is, yeah, 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 it's over. Yes. I mean, as they used to say, he's just not that into you. Um, but I, I think, yes, the friendship's over and my guess is she's still holding out hope that maybe she can date him someday and that's clouding her judgment about whether or not they stay friends. And, you know, if he's staying friends with people that you don't like and he's dating somebody you don't like, then he doesn't have the kind of judgment you would like in a friend regardless. Um, and I would say, you know, to stand up, dust yourself off and keep walking. Or move the fuck on is how I would put it, but I'm not an elected official. So I can say it in that way. Yes. Yes. There are words that I'm not allowed to say in public, Dan. 
Betsy Hodges, mayor of Minneapolis and a Magnum subscriber to the Savage Lovecast. Who knew? Uh, if you would like to join me in making a donation to Betsy Hodges, I never ask you to make a donation when I haven't made a donation myself. You can go to BetsyHodges.org and kick her some campaign cash and uh, keep her in office so we can keep fighting the Trump administration from the cities, the United Cities of America taking on Trump. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Betsy. It was great to talk. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old girl living in Arizona, which is probably the worst place to be dating (laughs) in modern history. So this is why I need a little bit of advice. So I met a guy, and I think he's really cute, and we get along, and we've been hanging out. But the more we talk, the more we've been talking about sex and the things that we like. And um, he opened up to me about his fetishes very early on, which I appreciate. And I've been trying to understand it. Uh, I even looked it up on the internet and it's not, a, it's not a, around much. I wondered if you've heard about it, but specifically he has two things that he wants to do slash try. So he's really into girls burping, which I'm not a very gassy person. And apparently farts are no good. It's only like mouth farts that he's into, but he wants a girl to burp in his mouth when he's kissing her. So that's like a double whammy. We haven't done that ever. But the other more concerning fetish, which maybe I just need to be educated more on, is hypnotism. He likes being put under. He likes other people being put under. He likes the idea of, like, being able to command someone to do something. So I don't know. I'm just kind of... These just sound like alarm bells to me, and I haven't really heard much about either of these fetishes, so I wondered what your opinion was. I'm concerned that maybe I don't think this is going to work out, because I'm not curious in these ways, and I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just need some advice. What do you think? Hypnotism fetishism is a real thing. Uh, the guys behind Watts the Safe Word, we've had Amp on the show. He's the host of Watts the Safe Word did an interview with an erotic hypnotist. You can look up that interview at Watch the Safe Word if you want to learn a little bit more about erotic hypnotism. So yeah, that's a thing. Burping? I guess that's a thing. Obviously it's a thing. It's a thing for him. If it exists in the world, if it happens in the world, someone somewhere is masturbating about it. Furiously, you can go online and see videos for uh, fart fetishism, for sneeze fetishists, for people dozing off fetishists. The things that people's imagination, their erotic imaginations, seize on and those things that become lifelong obsessions and kinks are pretty random. People with more common kinks are lucky in this respect. There are a lot of people out there who are into the standard kinks who look at the people with the really rare kinks and think, ah, that's so weird. Why would you choose that? Well, no one chooses their kinks. He's into that burping stuff, those mouth farts as you call them. Because that's what he's into. If that's a fetish too far for you, you can opt out. You can tell him you can't go there. Circling back briefly to the hypnotism thing, it's a kind of a control game. There's a lot of power play at work in almost all kinks. Trace any kink back to its source and what you find is power, is domination, submission, the the foot fetishist, obviously bondage and S&M, diaper play, big little role play, puppy play, pony play – all of them at their source seem to be about control. You know, we are primates. We are a hierarchical animal. We're always jockeying for position and control and insecure about our position and insecure about losing control. 
And so we eroticize those insecurities. One of the ways an eroticized insecurity can express itself is an interest in hypnotism and in controlling someone or being controlled by someone in a sexual situation where you're relieved of responsibility because you are hypnotized or someone has complete control over you because they hypnotized you. Some people are going to find that erotic. There's a whole hypnotism fetish community online. Some people aren't. If that doesn't work for you, if giving up control in that way, if you are the kind of person who can be hypnotized, and I happen to think hypnotism is bullshit, but whatever. If you are the kind of person who can be hypnotized, maybe this is something that you would enjoy. If you're not the kind of person who can be hypnotized, which is as if to say if you are a person, maybe you can play along. You can play act with your boyfriend and, and give him this. As for the burping, not everybody gets everything they want in a relationship. If you're willing to role play hypnotism where he's in complete control of you and you do whatever he says and you're an automaton, that might be enough to keep this good looking decent guy. And he can get his burp thing on by getting on YouTube and searching for burp videos and I just did it and there are tons. So he would have an outlet for the burp thing, for expressing that kink, enjoying that kink without you having to burp in his mouth. Hypnotism regarded as a kind of pretend, no ropes, no restraints, bondage. That turns you on to think about, maybe you can go there. If it doesn't, maybe you look at him and say, hey, your fetishes are fetishes too far for me. I'm not the right partner for you. Good luck out there. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, 51-year-old straight male living in Oregon, and I do some dating. The thing that I'm running into a lot here in this um, community that I live in is I'm running into a lot of people who claim to be polyamorous. And I'm not unfamiliar with the whole polyamory thing, but I, I've always considered it as polyamory, meaning, of course, many loves. And so I think about that, that uh, polyamorous people are essentially in loving relationships with more than one other person. So it's a relationship that involves more than two people. And that's how I've always you know, viewed polyamory. But what I'm finding with a lot of these people who claim to be polyamorous is is that really they're using the term polyamory to just be swingers. And basically they they claim to be polyamorous, but they're just going out and essentially, you know, free fucking whoever they want to free fuck, which is fine. I just wonder why aren't they just being honest and claiming themselves to be swingers? And or or is my definition or perception of polyamory maybe a little too specific? I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Maybe we do need a different word. Polyamory, poly from the Greek, amory from the Latin, many loves. Maybe we should go with, for the folks that you describe, multum sexus, which means lots of sex. Both words, Latin words, because as everyone has seen the t-shirt, polyamory is wrong. It is either multiamory or polyphilia because mixing Greek and Latin roots, wrong. So I stuck with just Latin. That said, you misuse swinging. Swinging isn't just one person running around having sex with a lot of people. Swinging means or is supposed to mean, traditionally meant, traditional swinging is a couple that goes out and has sex with other couples often in a structured swinging environment at a swingers club or a swingers event. Although some couples describe themselves as swingers and are independent operators, independent contractors who get online, get on Craigslist, have their own personal ads and swing privately in the comfort of their own home or a hotel room while they're on vacation. That's different from an open relationship or someone who just wants to have a lot of sex with a lot of people who's not in a relationship. But yeah, there do seem to be people out there who misuse polyamory, who use polyamory to describe themselves when 
they're not in concurrent loving relationships. They are just having a lot of sex with a lot of different people. Maybe they have a primary partner at home. They have a non-monogamous relationship. They have sex with a lot of randos on the side. If that person calls themselves polyamorous, that may be a bit of a misstatement unless they regard the three hours that they, they spent with that person as a concurrent loving relationship that then ended after just a couple of hours. They should just go with open. Swingers are a different thing. And uh, if we want a fancy term for somebody who just likes to have a ton of sex, I submit multum sexus. Hi, I'm a 34 bisexual female, and I am head of heels in love with my boyfriend. We've only been together about four months, so I know it's probably crazy to say this, but I really feel like this is it for me, that I found the person I want to spend my life with. And it's not something I've ever felt before, and it's great, but it's so terrifying. Here's the problem. We both live in Spain, and I'm currently on a month-long business trip in the U.S., and while I'm away, his ex-girlfriend is visiting for two weeks, and they are going to be traveling together through Spain. And I know that this is a visit that predated us, and I actually think it's really great that he's friends with sexes. I'm friends with Max's too, and I think it's healthy, but I'm so incredibly jealous. It's a feeling that's totally new for me. I've never been a jealous person. I've never felt jealous in a relationship, and I just don't know what to do with it. I don't know if I should ignore how I feel or talk to him about it. He has told me in the past that he's had some problems with fidelity and also honesty. So when I drilled down onto that, it seemed like maybe he was being too hard on himself. And I don't know. When we first started having sex, he was in a relationship with somebody else. But when I realized that she thought it was monogamous, I said we should stop until he either told her or broke up. So he did break up with her. Since then, I've talked with him, and he said he's only cheated on people when things were really bad, and he basically wanted out, and he's never cheated on somebody he was in love with. But that's still really scary for me. And I even offered, knowing I'd be gone for a month, and that it was pretty new, the possibility of monogamish, but he said that he couldn't handle the thought of me sleeping with someone else and shut it down. But then I asked him point blank if he thought that he'd maybe sleep with her, and he said something like he didn't think so, but with Bruce an opportunity, maybe he'd slip, which made me feel really awful. And then he sent a picture of them together the other day, and she's really, really hot. <laughs> so I've told him I'm feeling a little bit jealous, but the last thing I really want to do is I don't want to get in the way of his friendships, and I want to be supportive of him being friends with his exes. Um, he said that he gets how I feel. He said it won't happen again in the future. We'll talk things through with like potential visits before they take place, which I appreciated. But I'm still up with this really awful feeling. Also because he has this really weird policy of not wanting to talk on the phone to me when she's around because he doesn't want to make her comfortable, which makes me wonder if she still has feelings for him. So I've never been jealous. I've never had these issues in a relationship, but I cannot shake it. I am so incredibly jealous and it's really distracting and I don't know what to do. I really don't want to sabotage this relationship and I'm trying to be really understanding and not crazy, but I am in complete agony right now. I just don't know what to do. I could really, really use your advice. Well, if you're in agony right now, you are going to be fucking miserable by the time I'm done with you. You might want to turn off the show now if you are the caller. Everyone else can continue to listen. Four months. You've been dating this guy for four months. You don't fucking know this guy, right? You're in the discovery 
phase of the relationship. You're also in the completely besotted, love is blind, overwhelmed NRE stage of the relationship where you've invested him with your hopes for who you have this hunch he could be but might not be, right? The, the, the person you could spend the rest of your life with. That's a feeling. That's a hope. That's not a certainty. You don't know if he's actually that person yet. Your pussy wants him to be that person. Your heart wants him to be that person. Your head might want him to be that person. And he indeed might be that person. But you need to dial it back because you don't know if indeed he is that person. All right, moving on to the ex-girlfriend. The ex-girlfriend that he is definitely fucking while you're gone. The ex-girlfriend that he doesn't talk to you on the phone with when she's around because he's definitely fucking her still. Because he might have feelings for her, she might have feelings for him, or it might just be great sex and they're exes who sometimes fuck and he doesn't want the new relationship he's in to screw that up for him. And he's looking forward to fucking her and he is definitely fucking her while you're away. So you're not crazy and everything your gut is telling you is true. What you need to ask yourself is if the worst case scenario comes to pass, if I'm right, if Dan Savage is right and who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's not fucking her. He's definitely fucking her, but maybe he's not fucking her. What's so awful about it? You've only been dating for four months. It's a little soon to round it up to lifetime commitment. It's a little soon to make an exclusive agreement with someone, particularly when you're on separate continents. It is weird and it is telling that he's definitely fucking his ex-girlfriend while you're in the United States for a month, but he doesn't want you to fuck anybody else. He's told you that he's had trouble in the past with infidelity and with honesty. He also probably wants all the pussy all for himself. He doesn't want you fucking anybody else because the minute you get back, he wants you to be fucking him. He doesn't want you to fall in love with somebody else while you're gone, while he's keeping all of his options and his ex-girlfriend's legs open. That's the worst case scenario. And I think you should sit with that and accept that. Just accept that that's the case. This guy you've known for four months who's super hot that you think you could have a life with is not yet ready to make an exclusive commitment to you. Is that okay? Well, I don't think it should be okay unless it's mutual. You're not expected to be faithful to him in your absence, just as he's obviously not intending in any way to be faithful to you in yours. And if he's not the kind of guy who can be fair about that, if he's not the kind of guy who can extend to his girlfriend, if indeed he's calling you his girlfriend, the same license that he himself is seizing and enjoying in her absence, then he's got some fucking double standards. And it's not just dishonesty. It's selfishness and control issues. And you don't want to be with him. He's not the guy that you're Pussy heart and brain right now hope that he could be, and yet you are not sure that he is. And all these clues that we have in front of us, those of us who aren't in love with this guy and aren't blinded by that love can clearly see, point to, yeah, probably not the soulmate if the kind of soulmate that you need, if the person who is your soulmate is a person who is effortlessly monogamous and that you can trust hanging out with his insanely hot ex for a couple of weeks while you're gone. I think the best course of action is for you to call the relationship off in your absence. Tell him that he is single and free to do whatever he wishes to do while you're gone and you'll pick up where you left off when you return. And you are free to do the same. And I would encourage you to do the same. If opportunity presents itself and you weren't in love with somebody else or besotted or dating somebody else, you would seize that opportunity, seize that opportunity if it should come along. And live as if you are single because I promise you in your absence, so is he. 
Dan, 35-year-old cisgendered female calling from the West Coast. I think I live in the West Coast. It's a small town, a more conservative area. And my husband and I have recently been talking about opening up our marriage a little bit. I have never really done anything like this in the past. We've been talking about some fantasies we have. One of the ideas we have involves him fucking another woman and me watching. Um, this is something that I've thought about. However, I do have a small concern that when it's all said and done, I might not like having seen that. Do you have any ideas of questions I can maybe ask myself or he and I could talk about to see if I'm really ready for something like this? Baby steps is always the best advice when it comes to a varsity level kink. And cuckolding is definitely a varsity level kink. People will often fantasize about watching their partner with somebody else. They'll engage in dirty talk. The partner will be on board. And then in the moment, people have a visceral negative gut instinctive reaction that they didn't anticipate. And they certainly weren't seeking as they move toward fulfilling this fantasy. They thought it'd be about joy, thought it'd be about pleasure, but it sandpapered suddenly or touched suddenly a nerve that they didn't expect it to touch. So you got to be careful. You got to take baby steps. People who are into cuckolding, rarely does it start with watching your partner fuck somebody else, full penetration, full sex. It often starts with dirty talk about that scenario, sometimes going out, watching your partner flirt with somebody else, seeing how that feels, going out, watching your partner make out with somebody else, seeing how that feels. And if every step you take, every tiny little baby step, you're okay with it. Then you move toward maybe your partner fucking somebody else, maybe in front of you. But that first time your partner gets with someone else in front of you, it's just like if you're going to have a three-way. You might want to say to your partner, you know, this first three-way penetration is just for us. The other person rolling around, maybe oral. Oral, of course, involves potentially penetration, but people know what I mean when I say penetration, PIV or PIA, reserved for us. And then the first time you do get with someone else – alone with someone else. Your partner is going to be alone with a woman in front of you. You're going to realize your cut queen fantasies. You can borrow a page from folks who are just negotiating the garden variety, no power dynamic threesome, which is, you know, that first time we get with another person together, the first time we have a three-way, no PIV, no PIA, oral rolling around, light swap, the swingers call it. Uh, But these things we're going to hold back just for us because although I may be ready to watch you Make out with somebody else, roll around with somebody else, uh, enjoy somebody else's tits, maybe indulge in a little aura with someone else. I'm not ready yet to watch you fuck somebody else and lose yourself in that moment fucking someone else. And then see how you feel when it's just rolling around. When your partner eats somebody else's pussy or gets a blowjob and they roll around and there is full release but there is no PIV. And if that's okay, then you can take that next step and have full PIV, cut queening, power dynamic infused scene with your husband and enjoy it. But don't jump into the deep end of the pool until you know you can swim. You got to wade in at the shallow end first, which is again, dirty talk, fantasizing, going out together, flirting, and then seeing if that's okay. And you can then tiptoe toward, take baby steps toward realizing your full blown cock queen fantasies. Good luck. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the woman whose husband has been wearing women's clothes, specifically her clothes, as he explores his feminine side or his gender queerness. And I just wanted to say that she's being really incredibly supportive. And I know that's expected of spouses. But as a fellow mother of two who's also 
plus sized and nursing, it is really hard to feel sexy at this time in our lives. And especially maybe being larger than you have been before. I know I am. And I, I can't imagine having a size small or a size medium spouse suddenly wanting to wear my clothes and maybe clothes that I can't fit into. I'm, that's just really fucking amazing that she's being as supportive as she is. And I hope she can set some boundaries that he can respect. And yeah, I just wanted to, to say that to her. Go you. Hey, Dan and everyone else. This is a call about episode 574 and the woman who called in with the shitty friend and the possibly cutting out six or seven other friends. I've lived through this and it really rang to me when you said something about the first friend being really manipulative. Chances are those other friends haven't said shit because they, people don't care. I mean, yeah, they probably talk shit because everyone talks shit, but it's not like that. Like I've had multiple weird manipulative people in my life be like, all your friends are worried or all your friends think you fuck too many guys. And, you know, ultimately it's just that one person and all they're trying to do is make you feel shitty and get the power over you. Don't listen to them. Dump that friend and then hang out with the other people and see what happens. But that person, if you had a shitty feeling about them before and you were squicked out by how they treated you, they're shitty. Get them out of your life. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in regards to episode 574 with the girl whose boyfriend has been uh, posting pictures of her against her consent. And basically for any woman, I take pictures of myself all the time. It's kind of like my thing. In lingerie, nudes, whatever. The deal is, I never show my face from the neck down. Nobody can never can say it was you. Guys don't care if your face is in it or not. Trust me. So neck down only. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The 13th annual Hump Film Fest kicked off in Seattle this weekend. It is coming to Portland next weekend and touring the country next year. Go to Hump Film Fest. Com. If you're in Seattle or Portland and you want tickets to the 13th annual kickoff of Hump, uh, and go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets for Hump as it's coming to your city soon. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mayor Betsy Hodges on Twitter at Mayor Hodges. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. And Nancy, we'll be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.